Introducing the Two-Way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the Two-Way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the Two-Way for yourself at newbalance.com. And just like that, we're back for another week. I'm Josh Pate. This is the Late Kick Extra podcast, as jam-packed a podcast as we have ever had. And I've got announcements to make beforehand. Welcome in. I'm going to remind you how this works momentarily. But first, I got some big news for you. I challenged you recently on Late Kick Live on the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel and here on the Late Kick Extra podcast, pretty much everywhere I could challenge you. I thought it'd take longer, but it didn't. You guys came through in like 48 hours. The challenge was, get us to 500 five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. If you do that, and when you do that, I told you, we're taking you to three nights a week live on Late Kick Live on the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel, which you also get a podcast version of the following morning here. And I told you, we're adding a second Late Kick Extra mailbag format podcast, like you're listening to right now, per week. Like I said, it took you about 48 hours, and now we have flown past 500 five-star reviews. I say go for 1,000, and I don't see any reason why we can't. I mean, with the current way we're tracking, it wouldn't take too long, and I don't know what I'm going to give away at that point. I don't know, a car, uh, a million t-shirts. I don't know. We'll figure something out. But, man, I appreciate it so much. Like I've told you, it doesn't go unnoticed. A lot of really important people notice when we achieve those kinds of milestones and Our podcast hasn't been around all that long, and we've passed a lot of big ones out there in the college football media podcasting industry, what have you. So thank you so much for that. Please keep those reviews coming. Please keep those five-star reviews coming. Some of you ask, you know, what can we do to help? What can we do to help? Uh, And it's kind of like you have gone into volunteer mode for the show and for the brand, and I appreciate that. Everything you can do to help us is free of charge. The five-star reviews the subscribing to the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel, and then just spreading the word, sharing our content on Twitter, Facebook, wherever you prefer to share it. That's how you help us. And lastly, give me a follow on Twitter, at LateKickJosh. Now let's dive in, and I'm going to remind you how this works because it has occurred to me I've gone a couple of weeks and not done this at the beginning, and I think we have so many new listeners, I have to remind you, this is the Late Kick Extra podcast. This is a mailbag-only show, so it's Q&A, wall-to-wall. Uh, a lot of people think it's the best content that we do with Late Kick all week, any week, and I'm not so sure I disagree with you. So on Late Kick Live on the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel, I do a few Q&As, but I can't get to most of them. So either email me, joshpate706 at gmail.com, DM me on Twitter, at Late Kick Josh, or submit maybe a comment in the area under the Late Kick Live videos where I pen a comment for you to reply to with questions for this podcast. Or you can just do on Apple Podcasts a written review and submit your questions there. But we have got a lot of them for this week. We've, I think, gone 30 or 35 questions deep, and we're going to get to these hopefully somewhere within the range of an hour. Uh, They don't get mad at me if I go a little bit over an hour, but I'm wasting time, so let's get after it. 
Dusty kicks us off this week. I feel like fans and even coaches and players have been the last to know on whether college football seasons are going to be postponed or not. Are you hearing things behind the scenes that make you lean one way or the other? Yes, I am, Dusty. And I'm also going to tie Jared's question in. Jared asked, With all the focus and passion towards the Big Ten's decision to cancel the season, it doesn't seem like the Pac-12 is under the same pressure to deliver justification for canceling their season. Why is that? So let's answer both of these at the same time. To answer Dusty's question, optimism is rapidly growing. I mean rapidly growing that the final three, the SEC, the Big 12, and the ACC, are going to get their seasons off the ground. In fact, most people would be surprised at this point if they weren't able to start the seasons. After that, as we've always spoken about, then you have a whole new ball game, then you have a new set of challenges. But I'm of the belief, whereas I was kind of wobbly need a little bit in the last couple of months, that if we get the season off the ground, I think we're going to be able to carry it to its conclusion. And I've got growing optimism personally about that. But if you look at the things that you've been told to look at, you understand the optimism. Data in most every one of these states is now trending in the right direction. It wasn't a month and a half ago. That's why I've been critical of the Big Ten's decision to hop to Jared's question here. I've been critical of the Big Ten's decision because the statement they put out, which I thought didn't pass the smell test, and Kevin Warren's statement subsequently cited data and things going in the wrong direction in several states, and that simply wasn't the case. It would have been the case if the statement was released a month and a half or two months ago, but it wasn't. That's why I said it reeked of a statement that was filled with opinions that were formed two months ago, and then no one bothered to revise their opinion with new data. So yes, Dusty, optimism is growing, and I also think that there is speculation growing. Some people already know it, but there is speculation growing that this will go on to be viewed as a disastrous decision by the Big Ten. As for the Pac-12, the Pac-12 I have avoided being critical of for two reasons. Number one, I really always viewed them as being in lockstep with the Big Ten. So whether that's fair or not, I always viewed their decision as one that was going to be directly tied to what the Big Ten did. But number two, even if they were independent of anything else, and technically they are, they had a different set of challenges out West. They had states that weren't even allowing programs to be in the building. I mean, Chip Kelly, I don't know if you uh, heard this or not, but Chip Kelly, the day the Pac-12 announced that they were postponing the season, came out and said, well, uh, we only just got back in our building today or yesterday, so I didn't even know how we were going to be able to pull this off anyway. So it was just a different set of hurdles out there. The Pac-12 gave much more thought-based and science-based reasoning for their decision. And secondly, it was known they had a different set of obstacles that were going to have to be overcome. So I, in my view, see the Pac-12 as having done something much more in line with what they needed to do or had to do. The Big Ten chose this. Let me be perfectly clear. The Big Ten chose this path, and they chose the path well before whatever imaginary deadline would have been where they had to make a decision. And that's what people are going to look back on. I think you're going to see other conferences get seasons off the ground, maybe even complete seasons. And you will look back at the Big Ten. And at that point, you'll have the evidence that obviously it was possible to play a season safely. And secondly, not only did you not have one, you chose not to have one. 
And you made that choice weeks before you really needed to make that choice. Next up, Austin asks, In the past, you've given your thoughts on what you thought the best coaching job was in college football. My question to you is, what do you think are the best coaching jobs by conference and G5 as well? It's a good one, Austin. So I told you that I thought Georgia was the best job in the SEC. Let me pause. Here's what Austin asked. Austin asked best job. Like if I'm a head coach and I'm looking at what the job entails. He's not asking for current best programs. All right. So with that reset button hit in the SEC, Georgia, I think is the best job in that conference. Texas, I think is the best job in the Big 12. USC, I would still say is the best job in the Pac-12, although I think University of Oregon has greatly raised its collective profile as a job. But the name of the game is recruiting. And while Oregon has successfully recruited nationally under Mario Cristobal, if I'm the right head coach and I'm one of the best in America, you put me in Southern California with adequate resources and I think I'll do okay for myself there. In the Big Ten, Ohio State, I think, is the clear number one job. For the G5, it's not just because they've been good lately. Central Florida has been one of the best jobs in the G5 for a long time. It's just that they've most recently begun to capitalize on that. And Houston, I have long thought, is one of the best jobs at that level. Jeffrey is next up. I know you've said that you are not into calling out other members of the sports media, but I just don't get how so many people who cover college football for a living seem so condescending towards fans and parents of players and anyone who is just rooting for a season to happen. You guys do a great job avoiding that at 24-7, so you've become my go-to. Please don't let me down. Well, Jeffrey, thank you for that first off. Secondly, it's no accident. That's a concerted effort made on our part daily. It is discussed internally daily. And yes, I see what you're talking about. Yes, I shake my head at it. No, I do not call these folks out by name. That's not my job. I don't feel it's part of my responsibility. But I was told something a long time ago from when I first started getting into the news side of sports media. And I went to a game one time, and I remember this, and I've told this story before uh, in a different context, but I came back from the game, and I was talking to one of the more veteran sports guys in our market down there in Columbus, Georgia, and I said, you know what stood out to me? He asked me how it went, and I said, what stood out to me was I walked in the press box there, and I, you know, I, I was on cloud nine. I mean, this side of heaven, that's about as good as it gets on earth for me. I'm actually being paid a few dollars to go to a game instead of having to pay hundreds of dollars like I previously had been doing. And he said, well, what was it that stood out? And I said, not everyone seemed like that. Like some people seemed like it was just a normal job, like it was something they had to do, like they drugged themselves out of bed to go do it. And he said, well, that's because it is. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, and I will never forget it, you're passionate about college football, aren't you? And I said, absolutely. Always have been, always will be. He said, that's good. Don't lose that. Don't ever make the mistake, though, in thinking that everyone in this business shares your passion for college football. They may cover it, but to some of them, believe it or not, it's just a job. And then he went on to tell me, and I've realized this is true, too. Some of you get mad when pro athletes seem sort of disinterested after a game or whatnot, and I learned the hard way on that front, too. Not every pro athlete loves the sport as much as you love the sport. Not every pro athlete loves the team as much as you love the team. It just so happens that 
Some of them were born with immense God-given talent in a certain area, athletically, and they have harnessed it, and they've capitalized on it, and they've made millions of dollars because of it, but not everyone who has immense talent in a certain field is passionate about that field, if you can believe that. And so he said, just as maybe a middle linebacker playing for the Kansas City Chiefs any given year may not necessarily love football, he's just great at it, so he plays it and he makes a great living at it. There are people in this business who do it and they ended up here because they had the proper degree and they have very keen intellect, they have great skill in writing or delivery, whatever it is, on camera, but they're not passionate about it, so it is just a job for them. Now, I circle back to what you asked, Jeffrey. I see what you're talking about. It has not shocked me. It's an obvious reality to me that some people in our particular industry, in our line of work, forgot who their audience was long ago. This is not some new revelation. They forgot who their audience was long ago. And it's easy to spot them because these are the kinds of people, I'm not going to say they're everywhere. I'm not going to say it's a majority, but they are noticeable. I don't have to point them out to you. You can figure them out yourself. But these are the kinds of people, if they're doing talk radio, if they're doing TV, if they're doing print, they are directing their work at themselves and they're directing their work at their peers. That's really who they're trying to impress. That's really who they're formatting for. They're not formatting for you. They're not writing for you. They're not covering things. They're not delivering for you, even though you are the audience. They have long since forgotten about you. Like I said, that's on them. That's not for me to worry about. What I can worry about and control is this podcast, the show I do, the work we do at 24-7, and I can promise you this. Without hesitation, daily, this is discussed in our editorial meetings. Daily, it is discussed in every one of our formatting or production type meetings. And it is simply this. We have got an audience. There is a growing audience for 24-7 because many of you have left what turns you off and used to appeal to you but no longer does because the same people that, like myself, you've grown up reading or watching at this point, are no longer directing their content towards you, and you've come here because you accurately see that that's our mission here, and that's all it is. Really, it's a pretty easy formula when you get down to it. You've got an audience. A lot of you guys just love college football, or maybe you love college basketball, and you don't want anything else mixed in with it. You just want that delivered to you, and that's our job, and that's all our job is. We're not looking to change the world with this stuff. We're not looking to be activists with this stuff. We're just looking to bring you, the audience, what you want. And that's it. So if it seems that way, it's because it is that way. But I really appreciate that, Jeffrey. That does mean a lot. Blake is next up. Would you be more surprised if Georgia went undefeated and won a national title or went 7-3 and three regular season with no SEC championship game appearance? Blake, I'd be more surprised if they went undefeated and won the national title. I mean, just statistically, I think that's borne out, but there would have been a difference if this question was, would you be more surprised if Georgia won the national title or went 7-3? and three? But when you're adding that undefeated, I think it's going to be extremely difficult for anyone to go undefeated in the SEC this year. Georgia may go, what would it be, 11-1 and one eventually if they won the conference too. Maybe 11-1, and one, maybe even 10-2. and two is good enough to win the SEC, maybe they do that, and whoever the SEC puts in the playoff is going to have a great shot. I think they would be 
outside of Clemson being there, they would be overwhelming favorites against pretty much anyone else that you put in that playoff. So if Georgia gets in there, then obviously you revise your predictions. But right now we're sitting here and you know who they've got to go through and go undefeated doing that. That'd be tough. Whereas seven and three, seven and three would obviously be an extreme for them too. But need I remind you, their over under win total is eight. Oh, irresponsible. Turn the phone off there. Their over under win total is eight. So that would be the under hitting by the slimmest of margins, the under hitting. I mean, so there's just as likely a chance, according to an odds maker, of them winning seven games as there is of them winning nine games. I know that sounds crazy, but we also haven't ever seen a season play out like this. So my point is, seven and three seems terrible. Seven and three is pretty good year this year, uh, even if you are thought to be elite. And that's without knowing what potentially happens to your roster in, again, an unprecedented year. I know everyone loves to think in the best of cases, and you think glass all the way full, not just half full, all the way full and overflowing. But you got to understand, there is, there is a decent chance that you may wake up in week three. Who does Georgia play? I think it's Tennessee or someone like that. Maybe Alabama. Uh, in week three, I mean, just take any given week. You may wake up on a Tuesday morning and see that three of your linebackers are going to be out this week due to either contact tracing standards or maybe a positive COVID test. And think about what that would do. Think about if you woke up on a Tuesday and you found out that two of your linebackers had sprained their knees and they were going to be out Saturday. I mean, it would be the same impact. It's just that we're thinking about it in different terms now. So not only do you have potential normal injury concerns like you would deal with every year, you are compounding that with the potential for COVID impacting your roster. And guys being really totally healthy, they just have to sit out because they've tested for something. Now you get how hard it is to go undefeated for anyone, Alabama, Georgia, anyone. So I got to go with seven and three being more likely than undefeated national champ, Blake. Martin is next up. From all the insiders I've heard in Alabama, Paul Tyson is looking a lot better than Bryce Young has at fall practice. These are two quarterbacks, for those of you unfamiliar. I've heard that the light has come on for Paul Tyson. Just curious why everyone is pushing a true freshman in Bryce Young to start as much as people were pushing for Jalen Hurts to start over Tua. Is it because they got it wrong with starting Jalen over Tua and they're overcompensating because of that? Let me unpack this. Firstly, I talk to people at Alabama fairly regularly. I've not heard this from anyone. I pointed it out in the comment section when Martin said this. There's not a single person there, including people on Alabama's offensive staff, who have indicated in any way that Paul Tyson is ahead of Bryce Young or shows more promise than Bryce Young. That's false. Bryce Young is a stud. Bryce Young is going to play far sooner than later. This is independent of Paul Tyson. I'm just telling you, Bryce Young's a different cat and was the moment that he stepped on campus. So I don't know for the second part of this what we're necessarily talking about in regards to people pushing him to start as a true freshman because they were pushing for Hertz over Tua and they got it wrong. I'm To be honest with you, I'm not quite sure what that meant. And I don't know that a lot of people are pushing for Bryce Young to start. I really haven't sensed that. And again, I follow that program pretty closely. I think a lot of people are excited about Bryce Young, but this is not even a kid that they got to see in the spring game. They've seen a highlight tape of him from high school. 
And they've seen All-American film. That's what they've seen. They haven't even seen him go up against a college defense. So, And they've got an adequate option in Mac Jones. So it's not that you know, you got a placeholder there. Mac Jones is a solid quarterback. They can win with Mac Jones with the roster around him. But I don't get the sense that it's Paul Tyson above Bryce Young and he is a distant third on their depth chart at all. I don't get that at all. Next up is Travis. In one of your recent shows, there was a question about the best team ever referring to 2019 LSU. Why in that talk is the 2013 FSU team not mentioned? I get that the 01 Miami team was loaded with NFL picks as well as LSU last year, but so was 2013 FSU. They only had two close games all year. One was the start of the year, and the other, the opposing team knew the offensive calls or FSU beats Auburn by 20. Just curious why the FSU team never gets any love for being one of the best of all time. Travis, I would still await evidence on the claim that Auburn knew FSU's calls. I've heard those accusations too. I'm just awaiting evidence. Travis, the answer here is very simple. The two close games you mentioned is part of it, but the other part is no one respects the schedule they played that year. Just to be honest with you, no one respects the schedule. I respect the team. You got to respect the heck out of the team. But 2013 FSU is really famous for providing the historical data point that you can win a national championship having not really been tested. Previously, it was thought that if you don't face a couple of highly ranked teams, if you're not quote-unquote battle-tested during the regular season, you're going to get exposed when you get to a championship game setting because eventually you're going to have to play a good team. So Florida State goes through the regular season and they don't exactly play what you would call a gauntlet in the ACC that year, and they win most games convincingly. And like you said, they were pushed a couple of times, but really they weren't, and they they handled their business. They had Jameis Winston at quarterback, and then they get into the national championship game, and Auburn goes up big on them early. And that had a lot of people shaking their head, confirmation all over the place on their TV screen, told you they'll get exposed once they play a real team. Well, then they came back and won, famously, in dramatic fashion. And um, that is why, though, I think that most people don't even put FSU 2013 on that radar screen. They they look at it as that team being incapable of being viewed as one of the best of all time simply because they weren't presented with adequate challenge in the regular season. So it's not necessarily even their fault. Like the New England Patriots could have played that schedule and the same people would look at it and say, well, they didn't get tested. So, I mean, how can we really know how good they were? Next up, Fred had a question on Twitter, a reminder. Give me a follow there, if you will, at Late Kick Josh. Increasingly, as we get closer to the season, there's going to be more that happens between shows and between recordings that that's where I go to talk about. And I'd like for you to be there with me, at Late Kick Josh. So Fred asks, there's nothing that can really happen between now and the season that could stop it from starting, at least in my opinion. What do you think? Fred that is a bold statement, my friend, but I think I agree with you with a small caveat. There's always something that could happen. As I said at the beginning of this podcast, I believe that there is rapidly growing optimism that we're on track to start. So it, with, with the understanding anything could happen, I really like where we're at right now. I know you've had some hiccups. I know you've had some programs have to put some kids on the shelf for a second because of positive testing. I know you've had some really scary looking numbers about student body populations. 
that stuff will work itself out, I believe, and the powers that be believe, and you've got protocols in place. And ultimately, to be honest with you, the more programs that or the more universities that send the student body home, the safer your team is. No one wants to say that out loud for a couple of different reasons, but that's what I'm observing right now. And I think I agree with you, Fred. Outside of having multiple outbreaks where you have like 15 or 20 players that all of a sudden can't go, uh, then you have to maybe reassess things. But right now, I do feel good about where we're at. Next question. What do you think about Mike Bobo? Would he be a good replacement for Will Muschamp? We just got a five-star quarterback commitment because of Bobo and Connor Shaw and his dad. This is at South Carolina, by the way. If not Bobo, then who can we at South Carolina possibly get to compete with all the elite coaches that surround us these days? And that question presented by Old School Cock. No further comment. Well, what we have here is we have a situation where a lot of people, if you had the Q score that you have in the media world, which is just how many people like you, basically, approval rating, if you're in the political world, Mike Bobo has a really high approval rating. He's the new offensive coordinator at Carolina, hasn't coached a game there yet. Will Muschamp has a low approval rating. And so it's one of those deals, kind of like with a backup quarterback and a starting quarterback, where the backup quarterback's more popular than the starting quarterback. Well, Mike Bobo, people like him. There's a lot of optimism around him, not so much around Will Muschamp. And the question here is, well, what if we kind of just nudged Will Muschamp overboard and then it was Mike Bobo's team? And the thinking is they just got a five-star, as was mentioned here, a five-star quarterback commitment out of the state of Georgia again. And, um, you know, if Bobo goes, then he'll probably go. But if Bobo stays, then he stays. It wouldn't be the craziest concept in the world. Mike Bobo is a guy with head coaching experience. He is very well respected. I mean, you cannot find anyone in the coaching world to speak ill of Mike Bobo. When those allegations recently surfaced, about him at Colorado State, I've never seen more people more forcefully come to the table in defense of someone behind the scenes and publicly than I did with Mike Bobo. And so that got shot down really quick. In fact, the kid who made the allegations at Colorado State, his own teammates came out and said, ignore him. Just just, no, 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 no. This dude was cool with us. He was always helpful. Ignore him. And then everyone in the coaching world, in a little more forceful terms at times, did as well. Mike Bobo, I think, would be an option there. I don't think it's crazy to consider that. Now, we talked about this on Late Kick Live the other night, but I just kind of wonder with the whole hot seat talk thing, to extend off of this, if it's going to matter this year. And we've spoken about this before. This is nothing new. But if disaster strikes and Carolina goes 2-8 and eight this year, uh, you can talk about COVID all you want to. You can talk about challenges all you want to, missing spring, trying to install a new offense. I just don't know if they're going to be able, if Will Muschamp's crew is going to be able to sell the administration there on the idea that I deserve one more year. What would save him is obviously lack of football revenue, PR nightmare if you're trying to fire a coach in this climate. That's what could save him. But Someone's going to go rogue. I fully believe this. I fully believe at least one Power 5 program out there is going to go rogue. By that, I mean they're going to look around and they're going to see that no one else is willing to fire their coach. And so they may look around and say, well, if no one else is going to fire their coach, then we'll go ahead and do it. And yeah, we'll get criticized for it. And yeah, it's going to put a dent in our financials. But what we're going to get to do here is we're going to get to jump right to the front of the line and we're going to get to take our pick 
of potential coaching candidates out there. We're not going to have to stand behind USC and three or four other major programs that have higher profile jobs than us. We're going to be alone in the line. We get to pick whoever we want to within reason. So you could have Mike Bobo or you could have your pick of maybe other candidates that you wouldn't normally have your pick from. Or you could not make a move at all. Or Carolina could shock the world and go like six and four, seven and three. A lot of options on the table. Jay is next up. With only 39 teams representing the Power Five conferences this year and the SEC holding the reputation of being the toughest conference, where would you project the over-under for most teams ranked in the top 25 of the playoff rankings at any given point? Also, where might you project the over-under for the G5? Well, this is a fascinating question. What Jay is asking is that at any given point, how many SEC teams do you think could be ranked in the top 25? I'm a believer, I was talking to our bud Elliot about this yesterday, I'm a believer that the top 25 is pretty irrelevant this year, or every year, but if you're going to shave the number of teams that are still active down, why not shave to a top 15, let's say, instead of a top 25? And so in the top 15, the answer would be different. But Jay, if you're talking top 25, I mean, if I were to freeze things in like week eight of the season. I think Alabama would be ranked. I think uh, Auburn would be ranked. I think LSU would be ranked. I think A&M would be ranked. I think Georgia would be ranked. Florida would be ranked. Uh, It is very, in in the top 25, I think Tennessee would be ranked. So that's what, eight of your teams? And Kentucky absolutely stands a decent chance of being ranked there. So that's five, six, seven, eight, let's say nine. I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility if we're going to top 25. I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility nine SEC teams could be ranked at any given point. Uh, As for the other conferences in G5s, you know, with the G5s, Central Florida is obviously a candidate there, Cincinnati, Memphis, Houston. But to me this year, the fun thing to focus on, if you care about such things, is how, how do people look back on this season? How do people look back? I know everyone claims we're going to look at the national championship with an asterisk, but how do people look at rankings? Because this could be a chance for a program that normally would have finished number 40, number 41, 42 in the country to finish top 25. And they get to tout that. You know, a coach gets to put that on his resume, led so-and-so to a top 25 finish in 2020. And they kind of just hope, you don't remember that. How about saying... I led so-and-so to a top-five finish in the last five years. That's how you put it. That's how you do it. And then you go out and you pitch that on the recruiting trail. You take it to the negotiating table when you're trying to extend your contract. So I I know that's not at all what you asked, Jay. But I think that in a conference like the SEC, which is the one you asked about, easily you could have nine teams. You could even push ten. Like if Ole Miss tries to pull something crazy or Mike Leach pulls something crazy, you could have ten for that matter. Chris is next. If Georgia ends up having a more powerful offense, will people accuse the defense of taking a step back? Chris, I say this respectfully. I'm not directing this towards you, but I'm just more throwing it out there. I don't care. Like if I were a Georgia fan, I don't care what people accuse me of. Here's the only thing I care about. Is our football team better with Todd Munkin and whatever they're going to run offensively? Are we better than we were last year and in previous years? Have we upgraded the overall product we're putting on the field? If the answer is yes, who cares what they say about my defense? It's like LSU last year. I don't know if people remember this, but in the first half of the season, people were pretty critical of LSU's defense. How'd that team finish? 
They put up record numbers. They won a national championship. They rewrote the college football record books in the process. So you could either focus on the fact that some people were critical of their defense, or you could focus on the fact that they may very well have had the best college football team of all time last year. And we understand that they go hand in hand. With the better product on the field offensively, you score quicker, you give yourself a lot more leeway to do some things defensively and be more aggressive defensively. That may involve giving up a few more points. But if the cumulative effect and impact of the move is that your team is better, that's all that matters. And if Georgia's team is better this year, Chris, I think you would agree here, you'll probably smile all the way to the podium, all the way to the confetti flying around you, if someone's critical of your defense. Like, I think Georgia will have the best defense in the country this year. But if they finish sixth in the country in total defense and they win a national championship in the process, I don't think many people will be shedding tears in Athens, Georgia. David's next. What are the odds the current situation causes the demise of the Big Ten? And what signs should we look for? Well, I don't think the Big Ten's going to see a demise anytime soon, David. I think there will be a lot of noticeable changes to the conference some that are obvious and some that maybe are hidden that we'll find out in the future together because of this. I think a lot of it depends on what they're able to do in the spring. I'm not optimistic about their chances of getting getting anything worthwhile off the ground in the spring. I certainly hope I'm wrong now. I, I want my predictions to be right, but in this case, I want them to be wrong because I'd love to be talking about Ohio State and Michigan in March. That would be, and not on the basketball court. That would be really, really fun. However, what are the signs that you should look for? Well, obviously recruiting. Um, I'll tell you what else you should look for. And I don't think this is going to be the case, but I could be wrong here. Look for fan engagement. When the product comes back, if it's spring or if it's next fall, just look for fan engagement. Look at the shots in the upper levels of those stadiums. Is every house packed like it normally is? Or do you see some chunks of open seats? Uh, look at television numbers. Look at the metered markets up there. It's an industry term, but it's basically the bigger markets have TV meter numbers, and you can get a more accurate read of how many people are watching. And um, just see if they're off a tick. And what that would indicate is some people walked away from the table when you walked away, and they never came back. Now, I don't think that's going to happen. Full disclosure, I think when Big Ten football is back, I think Big Ten fans will be back. However, that's not a definite because I can tell you right now, some people up there have been badly turned off by this. Now, if you're an alum of a Big Ten program like Wisconsin, you're always going to be Wisconsin. But if you just grew up in, um, I don't know, Green Bay, for example, and yeah, you're a big Packers fan and you didn't go to Wisconsin, but you just pull for them because they're, they're the closest major college team. But I mean, you could live without them. Maybe you walked away from the table. Maybe you're disgusted enough this year to just not come back. I don't know. I don't. I hope that's not the case. Now, uh, I don't. Unlike some out there, I don't say these things with glee in my voice at all. However, I think a lot remains to be seen, and it hinges on what they're able to do in spring. And and here's what I think would really have some newborn good faith with your fan base up there, your constituents, your audience. If you cleaned house, if you had new leadership, if you made changes up there that indicated the mistakes we just made, we will never make again. I think that would go a long way in absolving you of a lot of the rightful criticism that will be directed your way if things go the way it looks like they will go. Ryan, next up, as a newly minted Iowa State fan, 
What are our team's biggest hurdles to winning a national title? Also, let me know your shirt size. I'll send some tees your way. Extra large, Ryan, is the shirt size, and I'll take any free Iowa State merchandise I can get. As I have said on Late Kick Live many times, I don't lead the show with it, but I slip it in there, and a lot of you have picked up on it. I have a fascination with Iowa State. I feel a connection to Iowa State. I've never been to Iowa. I've never been to the state before. Yet, I have said my favorite trophy, my favorite rivalry trophy is Floyd of Rosedale, which is Iowa, Minnesota. My favorite team that I have really never had an attachment to growing up is Iowa State. And my favorite movie is Field of Dreams, set in the state of Iowa. So, I wasn't born in Iowa, never been there, but I just feel like maybe in another life. Like, I, I, you know what I just realized? Now, this is pure nerd alert. And I won't spend more than 15 seconds on this. But growing up, I was a pro wrestling fan. I really liked Triple H. His first world title win was in Ames, Iowa, the night after SummerSlam 1999, which was in the Target Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. All right, 15 seconds is up on that. So with Iowa State, I don't know where the fascination comes from, is my point. Like, I, I like the head coach there in Matt Campbell. They got a really good quarterback in Brock Purdy right now. But I think what kind of piqued my interest in Iowa State is I watch a lot of games, as do most of you. And so I watch a lot of games, and there are some places that I've watched, and I've, it's always been fascinating to me how hard it feels like it is to play there. Now, I grew up covering the SEC and going to games in the SEC, so every stadium you go in down here, it's 90,000, 100,000 people. Obviously, it's hard to play at all these places. But then I'll turn on an Iowa State game, and it'll be you know 11 o'clock a.m. kickoff there local time, and it's the capacity of the stadium is not 100,000 by any stretch, but it just, for some reason, it's kind of the same way when you watch a game at Utah or BYU for some reason. It just feels like, boy, those places, it does not feel very hospitable. It does not feel like that opposing team is having a good run of things right now. I don't know what that is, but it's palpable. It even comes through the TV. And so I would imagine if I could ever get to a game there in a year where we could have full capacity, which is on my bucket list, it's a goal of mine, then I would imagine that it would probably come through if you're standing on the sideline too. So Ryan asked, what are the biggest hurdles to winning a title? Roster deficit. Uh, Iowa State's probably in as good a roster position right now as they've been. You could argue as they've ever been, to be honest with you, with what Matt Campbell's done there. And you got a quarterback there that is a bona fide postseason Big 12 player of the year kind of candidate. He could be in that conversation. So roster-wise, they're there. But when you're talking about your twos, like this is a game where you play 11 at a time, but when you're talking about your next wave, that's where it's tough. Because if you're Oklahoma or even Texas, even when a Texas, for example, is not elite, quote-unquote, it's really hard to match their twos. It's really hard to match their backup defensive ends and their backup receivers. And then if you're talking about wading into the pool of college football playoff contenders, I mean, can you imagine right now Iowa State going up against a team like Georgia, <clears throat> excuse me, or a team like Alabama, and not the starters they put out there. The starters are good enough. But those are teams that when they lose their number ones, and if you lose your number ones, and you play backups on backups, which is going to happen over the course of a season at certain positions, you understand how wide the gap is there. Like there's a, there's a gap between your number ones and their number ones. But the big gaps and where the separation really happens in this sport is, is how good are their twos and how good are your twos. And you'll notice 
with teams that float in the 15 to 25 range versus teams that hang out in the top five in, in America year in and year out, their backups, the gap between their backups and your backups is infinitely larger than the gap between their starters and your starters. That is the biggest hurdle at Iowa State, Ryan. Next up is H. Miller. Do you think Bryce Young will be QB1 for Bama at any point in the 2020 season? Essentially, he's asking, is Bryce Young going to start at any point at quarterback for Alabama this year? I think the answer is yes. I think at some point in this college football season, Bryce Young will start at quarterback for Alabama. Can't give you any more accurate prediction or can't give you any more informed prediction, I guess, than that. But yes, I do believe that will happen. Next up is Johnny. He asks, what is the ceiling for Chase Bryce at Duke over the next two years? Well, it's a good question. First off, thank you for the Duke football question. They were bad offensively last year, especially at the end of the year. I want to say the stat was like they scored 45 or 44 points over their past or last four games. They were in the 120s offensively and and various metrics that are very important to winning football games. And uh, their receiver core is is very lackluster, was last year, is going to enter this year unproven. And so I say all that to say, even if Chase Bryce is a stud, he's walking into a situation where there is significant improvement that needs to be made for them to be an offense that can compete and can push people over there. Now, the good news is, I think he is talented. They had a scrimmage Saturday and heard some good things about him out of that scrimmage. But, I mean, you put a stud quarterback, and that's a stretch now. I'm saying even if he is a stud quarterback, if you put him on the field and he doesn't have really many options to throw to, we've seen that happen before. So my question is not so much about Chase Bryce. The question about Duke is ultimately going to be, what what about the supporting cast? And I'm very, very unsold on the supporting cast right now. I really wish that Duke could be more active in going the transfer route. Like it's, it's a lot tougher to be getting kids into Duke. And the reason I say that is because if I were to have that guy for two years and I were Dave Cutcliffe, I'd look around and say, let's go bring half a dozen transfers in here. Let's go for it. In 2021, let's just go for it. But I don't know that that's necessarily realistic there. So going to have to do it the old-fashioned way. Development, development, development. And believe it or not, Dave Cutcliffe has done that a time or two in his career. Next up, we've got a screenshot. I put in my notes, screenshot on the home screen. So this is fascinating podcasting here. I'm uh, killing time while I get to the home screen. Okay, here we go. So I noticed a lot of you, when you leave your reviews in the Apple podcast review section, leave a five-star review, by the way, if you haven't already. My sister hadn't even left one. I was in her kitchen last night. We were talking about stuff. I said, give me your phone. She said, no. And I said, give me your phone. She said, what do you want to look at? I'll pull it up. And so we pulled up. Apple Podcast. And there not only was she not subscribed, but she hadn't even left a five-star review. So I have cheated, and I have doctored one five-star review for our show. But what I notice is a lot of you guys, when you drop the review, you don't even necessarily submit a question with your review. You just leave a comment. And since this is a Q&A, I normally don't read the comments, but I wanted to read one because it'll really raise my self-esteem early on this Wednesday morning, let's be honest. And secondly, I want to acknowledge in reading this one comment that I read every one of them and I really appreciate them. So this is very fascinating because it's a five-star review and BC1Cam says, Dear sponsors, are you guys listening? Ford, Chevy, Coke, you guys out there listening? He says, Dear sponsors, 
Josh and the team have the best show in the market. And since we're not doing radio, I can only assume that the market means the entire world. And that is very big, if true. If true. He says, please give them all the money so we can have more time with them. This is real now. I'm not making this up. You can go look at it yourself. The show is so good, in fact, I bought an iPad just to review the podcast. I literally did not own one Apple product ever until I needed to review this show. Now that you mention it, Tim Cook, I've stood next to you at a couple of Auburn games. I'm selling iPads for you guys. We're selling product for you guys. So maybe that's the next sponsor we need to talk about. I already use an Apple product on set every show anyway. I just have a 24-7 sticker over the front of it. I could peel that sticker off for the right price. And then BC1Cam goes on to say, keep up the wonderful work. I guess if I had a question, I would ask that you mention the whole NCAA Tennessee transfer debacle. And he's talking about Cade Mays, five-star offensive lineman that was from Tennessee, committed to Georgia, has now transferred to Tennessee, had his immediate eligibility waiver denied. Listen, on the surface, it looks inexplicable to me. Not by the letter of the law. If they're strictly going by the letter of the law, he probably shouldn't be playing this year. But that's the whole thing. That's not what they go by. It's like someone has to wake up on the right side of the bed in Indianapolis and, okay, well, you either made enough noise or you play the right position or I'm just in a good mood today, so I think I'll approve your waiver. So, yeah, I get what you're saying there. Uh, The next one is he wants me to acknowledge that Vol fans are the best. Well, you certainly are the best, BC1Cam, and my mom's a Tennessee fan too, so I certainly would never suggest otherwise. And then he asks, also, is there any way 24-7 can send some Tennessee film to my Twitter account? Well, it would not be a 24-7 call. Unfortunately, it would be a CBS call, and they're very particular, as you could understand, about just sending their media out with no licensing. So, hey, if it were up to me, I'd do it, but then again, that's probably why I'm not running a major media organization right now. But in all sincerity, I appreciate that comment, and I appreciate the comment that we comments like that that we get from a lot of you. It does mean a lot, and I read every single one of them. Next up is Jay Ferg. Despite no immediate evidence in the fall of 2020 because we can't play, do you think Penn State is going to shift to a more pass-heavy attack under Kirk Soraka, or do they lean more on RPO? That's a good question, and I think it's going to be a case-by-case. Soraka is a guy, and I don't think Franklin would have hired him otherwise, who can tailor his system to the personnel. You've got to be able to do that today. Gone are the days in college football where you had a system, and it's very rigid, and it's not flexible, and whatever personnel we have, they're going to have to bend to fit this system, or else we're going four and eight. That's not how you do it. Uh, The times have changed, and now you have got offensive coordinators who are flexible enough at the highest level and who are good, who are flexible enough with their system to tailor it to the personnel. And if you're being paid what they're paid and you spend the amount of time that you spend on this craft, there's no reason why you shouldn't be able to do that. So the answer there is, I wish we could have found out this year. I mean, this is one of the things when you start thinking about it at a more granular level, it's so frustrating. Because there were so many things I was excited about. Penn State was one of them. I talked about them countless times. I was so excited to see what their offense was going to be. And now, instead, you just have to wonder what could have been, what would have been. Where, what would Penn State's record be right now? Pathetic. Not the record. I'm saying the fact that I can't see it is pathetic. Puff 11 next up. How do you see Tennessee finishing with the new schedule and opponents they were given? Well... I'm not going to give out predictions quite yet, although that's coming in the near future. And a quick reminder, 
we are going to be doing what I call grand season predictions for all the big teams, Tennessee included, in the very near future on the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel. You're going to want to subscribe there if you haven't already. I'm telling you we got some really good stuff coming, and selfishly, I think we already have good stuff out there. But even if you're not already subscribed, do it. It's free. doesn't cost a thing. You have to watch an ad every now and then, but that's about it. And you do that on TV anyway. And uh, we will do best, worst, and most likely record scenarios for every team, Tennessee included. And what I think we'll be looking at there is there's a possibility that Tennessee finishes below 500 in their worst case. The best case, they're pulling off some stunners and they're in like eight and two, seven and three territory. I think their uh, win total was either five, it was five or six. I can't remember which one it was. Tennessee is in a position, as I said, moments after the SEC released the entire schedule, they're in a position to shock some people because they're not going. They're certainly not going to be favored against Georgia or Alabama, but they're in position where they play those teams before and after they play each other. So if you believe in a look ahead spot, if you believe in a letdown spot, and not everyone buys into that, but if you do buy into it, certainly it doesn't hurt to have those teams at that spot. They play Georgia early in the season. What if Georgia's offense? hasn't come together yet. What if Tennessee and Jeremy Pruitt, and what if this offense, what if they're playing a style of football this year that's ultra-physical, and they're trying to bludgeon you, and they're doing it because they don't believe that teams have adequately prepared in the different setting that they've had in this offseason. They don't believe that coaches have been able to get their teams prepared to deal with that pounding like they normally would have been able to. And as a result, Tennessee is able to shorten games and really turn games into boxing matches, and they've taken body blow after bloody blow to you. What if that's Tennessee's style this year? And what if they're able to carry it out to perfection and win some games 17-13? I don't know, but that will be covered in our Tennessee preview coming up. Next up, in an extreme scenario, do you think universities could allow athletes to use facilities and maintain their practice schedule while the regular student body was sent home? I do believe that. I don't believe an entire, like a total college football bubble is possible. I don't think you could do with college football what they're doing with the NBA, for example. However, I think it's much more attainable to a degree than people realize. And it's happening at some places right now. For instance, if you have sent the normal student body home or if you've sent them into an entire virtual learning mode, so you don't have classroom settings and therefore you greatly reduce human-to-human interaction on campus, and you already had your football players majority taking virtual classes, and, and this is where their, their discipline is paramount, you kind of got them insulated in their own dorm settings, and I know the dorm numbers and percentages are different campus-to-campus, campus, but if you can keep them at the facility, and if you can just keep them kind of locked away as much as you possibly can, I think that you can borderline achieve kind of a, a pseudo bubble, if you will. A bubble, it's got some holes in it, but you know, you're know you you're injecting more air into it than is exiting through the holes. So the net effect is, hey, we still have a bubble here. We're having to inject a lot of air into it, but we still got a bubble. I think it's possible, yeah. And that's why I think optimism is growing. Because I think a lot of people have seen players come back on campus and really, really early on, there were some bad numbers and they never were publicized. I want to tell you this, and I'm not going to publicize them now, but there were some major programs out there that had a lot of positive COVID tests when players got back on campus from being at home. And it wasn't publicized, and they got it under control. They knew all the while they could get it under control, and they have. And now some of those same programs have gone several weeks without having a positive, which goes to show you they know what they're doing. 
They're just worried about other folks not knowing what they're doing. And so that's why there's optimism. If they can keep them where they control the environment, they feel very good about getting the season underway and off the ground. Goose, next up. What is the impact of Quinn Ewer's commitment to Texas? I heard Steve Wolfong say, with his commitment, the future of Texas football is as bright as any program in America. Quinn Ewers, for those of you unfamiliar, is the number one rated quarterback in the 2022 recruiting cycle. So not this one, but the next one. And he was uh, obviously a five-star talent, and he committed to Texas. And this is a really, really big deal for Texas, obviously. I wouldn't disagree with what Steve Wolfong said. Actually, if you're listening on Wednesday or, or afterwards, you will probably be able to go to the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel and see our latest Wolfong recruiting whip around. And I would strongly advise you guys to watch that. We do it weekly. We normally release it on Wednesdays, somewhere in the midweek area. And there's a lot of tidbits in that. And especially in today's episode, not so much Texas, uh, but we got some Oklahoma and Georgia, a lot of interesting updates there. But back to Ewers in Texas. I think it's really, really big. Now, here's what it's contingent on. What it's contingent on is do something this year. Well, see, that really is what makes your future brighter. If you show me that you're on track this year, like you got a you got a 15-year senior quarterback in Sam Ellinger this year. You got a really deep stacked defensive line this year. You got a talented enough team to win the Big 12 this year. I don't want to wait until next year. What I'd love to see is I'd love to see a program that's already humming, that's already infused itself with a couple of new coordinators and we're getting immediate results out of them. And then we're going to plug in the number one overall quarterback in America in the next recruiting cycle. That's when I start to feel really good about their future being as bright as any program in America. But what the commitment of a guy like Ewers does so far out is it does the same thing Caleb Williams is doing with Oklahoma right now, which is why I mentioned that. And we're going to talk about Caleb Williams later in the podcast. What it does is it has this magnetism. Guys obviously want to go play with other legit guys. And Quinn Ewers, being a five-star quarterback, is viewed as one of those. And so if I'm a high four-star, five-star receiver from Beaumont or Lake Charles or Mobile or Tallahassee, I'm looking at that situation very closely. So yes, definitely has the potential to have a snowball effect in a positive way for Texas. Go Tigers 97 asks, what is your opinion of Chip Kelly at UCLA? Could he ever get them to the level he had at Oregon? No, I don't think so. I think that a lot of the shine has long since worn off on Chip Kelly. Chip Kelly is a classic example of a guy that was doing something revolutionary and he was really setting the pace at Oregon and he redefined what could be done at what at the time was thought of as a very second or even third tier program. And that was no knock on Oregon. It was just that there's no, usually, you know, Justin Herbert notwithstanding, there's usually not a lot of in-state talent in Oregon. And so what you were looking at back then out there is, we got a recruit against USC. No, you don't. What you do is you just run a different system. And you run a system wherein a USC three-star is a five-star for your purposes. You can get kids up there they didn't even offer, and you can beat them. You can run circles around them with the guys they didn't offer in a lot of cases, and then you raise the profile of your program, and then you can start recruiting more heads up, and folks want to come up there, and that's what Chip Kelly did there. But the point is, he was doing something offensively that was revolutionary at the time. The problem is, nothing is revolutionary for long in any sport, college football or anything else. If it's working, then guess what people are doing? They're copying it, or at least versions of it. And so Chip Kelly went to the NFL in the meanwhile, and then he came back, and the sport had evolved, 
and adapted, and defenses were no longer taken by surprise at what Chip Kelly had been doing, and a bunch of other offenses were doing versions of what he was doing, and he did not adjust. There was no adjustment. And there, to my knowledge, hasn't been really much adjustment. And the second problem is there is not a lot of passion and enthusiasm where he is. Oregon, they're rabid about college football. UCLA, oh, do we have a game today? Or, or we're off this week. Okay, who do, who do we play next week? What, what time's the game? Oh, it's a road game? Like, that's a conversation that they have about UCLA football in Los Angeles. And that's just the way it is. And what aggravates a lot of you guys who are diehard UCLA football fans is you know what I just said is true. There aren't enough of you. There are passionate UCLA football fans. There aren't enough of you. And so the reason that matters is because it's really hard to recruit to a stadium that's 40% full. And it's also hard to recruit when there's not enough pressure really being placed. Like if you're, if you're the head coach at Auburn and you are falling short of expectation, the pressure is so immense you can't even imagine it. People will not allow you to underachieve for very long. The competition level elsewhere is too high, and the expectation on you is too high, and they won't tolerate subpar performance for very long. At UCLA, and you know, it is kind of is what it is, and maybe we'll maybe we'll be all right in basketball season, but hey, athletics in the grand scheme of things, I mean, that's not the most important thing in the world. Well, listen, maybe that's right, but if you're passionate about it, you don't want to hear that. And if you're listening to this, you're probably passionate about it. So for many reasons, no, I don't think Chip Kelly can achieve at UCLA what he did at Oregon. Right, we're going to take an ad break right quick. Got a really good question coming back. And it's about this gulf that has formed between the Big Ten and the Pac-12 and other conferences. And when I say gulf, I'm specifically referring to what's going to happen if we have a season in the big three that are left and they don't have a season in those conferences, what does it look like on the other side? Is there a big gap? You know what, what happens? What are the ramifications? We'll talk about it right after this. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And we're back and we kick it off with Jeff here. Where would you say right now, as of today, the three remaining Power 5 conferences stand on having a season? Are these university presidents listening to Big Ten presidents, NCAA, and the media, have they paid attention to the backlash against the Big Ten commissioner and presidents? Are they going to use positive tests of college football students as a reason to shut it all down? So, Jeff, basically, you're scared. You have a reason to be. I'm, I'm scared too, Jeff. We're scared together. But as I said before, 
there's growing optimism. Every day there's growing optimism that the ones remaining at the table, and this is an important point, the ones remaining at the table, the SEC, the Big Ten, the ACC, and, and some G5s behind them, they are looking for reasons to play. Whereas certain people in the Big Ten were looking for any reason not to play. And when I say Big Ten, I think you understand, but it's important if you don't understand to note, I'm not talking about ADs. I'm not talking about coaches or players or parents. I'm talking about folks who really, at the end of the day, could take football or leave it. And so in the SEC, they're not having those conversations. The people who think like that have been pushed to the side. And the ACC and the Big 12 kind of similarly. So they are looking for every reason to play. They're doing it responsibly. Anyone who tells you they're not is lying to your face. And they're clueless because they're not in the room either. So they don't really know what they're talking about. They're just speculating, knowing that no one's going to really push back on it because they have a blue check mark next to their name on Twitter. However, no, I do not think anything is going to be weaponized in an effort not to play in those conferences. And so the odds, as you asked, I think the odds are far above 50%. I would put them far above. I would put the odds right now of the other three conferences starting their college football seasons well above 75%. Like that's how good I feel about it today. And then we'll see. Joe asks probably the most important question in the history of this podcast. Joe asks, hey, are there going to be any SEC snow games this season? Well, Joe, I was looking at the schedule and there, there is potential here. Because remember, the SEC regular season is going to stretch into December. And there are a couple of dates right off the top of my head before even pulling up my helmet grid schedule here. I am fascinated by the prospect of Alabama playing at Arkansas. That's Northwest Arkansas, or as we like to say in the South, halfway to Canada. And they're going to play in Fayetteville December 5th. Okay, so there's potential there. It's going to be miserable weather-wise either way. But also, Florida plays at Tennessee. That doesn't figure to be too fun for kids from Gainesville, some of whom never left the state of Florida growing up. And I'm not knocking that lifestyle because I wouldn't either if I grew up in Florida. And we have a game where South Carolina plays at Kentucky. So you've got games in Lexington, Fayetteville, and Knoxville the last week of the season. And that's essentially the SEC schedule maker just snickering and saying, I'm going to get all this criticism on the front end, but wait until we get into December and see what I threw at him. So yeah, Joe, we could have it in in the odds when we have three games in areas, you know, kind of above the state line of Tennessee and Alabama and Georgia. We got three games up there. Yeah, it could happen. It could very well happen. Next up, the number one recruit in the country always seems to be a quarterback or a defensive lineman. Do you know why? Um... I don't necessarily know why. I think there's a premium placed on those positions uh, for obvious reasons. I think also that this is something that is better suited for a member of the rankings council to answer. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to seamlessly pass this one off to Bud Elliott and Barton Simmons. And hopefully one of them is eavesdropping right now. So Barton, Bud, why does the number one recruit in the country always seem to be a quarterback or a defensive lineman? Explain yourself. Next up, Trav Dye. In the interest of fairness in the FBS, what do you think of conferences having a relegation system similar to the ones they use in overseas soccer? Take the SEC and the American Athletic Conference, for example. Let's say they formed an alliance, kind of a super alliance, where the top two teams from the AAC at the end of the season replaced the bottom two teams in the SEC. I would love it for the simple fact 
that everyone in FBS could realistically be no more than two years away from the playoff. Please be gentle with me. I I think we had a version of this question a couple of weeks ago. Conceptually, this would be so fun. Conceptually, I say conceptually because we have to get to reality in a second, but conceptually, oh, this would be a blast to watch. And you'd finally have real heat on programs like Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt, as I said on Twitter with Mike Griffith yesterday, Vanderbilt, some of you may not know this, there are multiple Texas high school football programs with better facilities than Vanderbilt. That is not sarcasm. That is a sad reality. And the reason, obviously, is that they know they can cash that check every year and really not have to invest in football. And it's a shame to watch. It's why you would never, ever, ever, even if they go winless 10 years in a row, hear me call for the head coach of Vanderbilt to be fired. Never would. It's not even a fair proposition. Well, this would put heat on a program like Vanderbilt to invest or get out and no longer be able to cash that check. And conversely, it would give incentive to programs like Central Florida, like Memphis, an added incentive on top of what they already have to keep winning and then get a spot at the big boy table and then come prove yourself. Try and do what people say you're incapable of doing. Now, for contractual reasons and a million other reasons, conference affiliations, whatnot, no, this can't happen. But boy, it would be fun. If we just reinvented the sport today and we reworked the TV deals today and conference affiliation today, I'm not so sure I wouldn't be right there along with you. I would love to watch that. Bo Evil is next up. Why couldn't the SEC let Clemson play South Carolina? Both teams wanted to play. They could have made an exception for that game. Well, they probably could, and I was rooting for it to happen, but you got to extend things beyond just that. You got to extend things to, uh, well, what would you have done with Georgia, Georgia Tech? What would you have done FSU, Florida? What would you have done Kentucky, Louisville? Would we have matched all those up? And for the teams that needed a game in the final weekend that weren't a part of a traditional in-state rivalry, what would you have done with them? Like who would who would Auburn have played? Who would Mississippi State have played? Would you have added another conference game onto some schedules? and an out-of-conference game for others. And then, of course, you come to the big hurdle, which is understanding if you keep your schedule in a bubble and you play an all-conference schedule, you don't have to worry about what happens elsewhere. And you don't have to worry about rescheduling elsewhere. Like if Clemson were to have a game in week six that they can't play and then they need to place that one somewhere else, does it overlap with Carolina and that game they have scheduled there? And you have all sorts of potential hiccups that you don't have to worry about as much if you have just a regular conference-only schedule. 15P Stevenson is next up. With recruiting being in a dead period for the foreseeable future, do you think what Caleb Williams just did for Oklahoma will become a trend? What are your thoughts on the Sooner Summit? Very good idea. Really interesting what happened there. The Sooner Summit, for those of you unfamiliar, and Caleb Williams, for those of you unfamiliar, is the number one rated quarterback in this recruiting cycle, per the 24-7 sports team, or not team, player recruiting rankings. And Caleb Williams, number one quarterback in America, is committed to Oklahoma. I think he committed on July 4th. And no one's taking visits right now because it's a dead period. They've extended it, and you can't be taking official visits. Well, Caleb Williams took it upon himself to organize an unofficial visit weekend. And they brought a bunch of top prospects to Norman kind of unofficially. They had to come on their own dime. And uh, it looks like it has already or will soon pay dividends for them. And it already did. I think they got a commitment or two over the weekend. But if they didn't already, it soon will. 
And Georgia did this too. And yes, I think it's going to become a trend. And this is why I was talking about what I did with Quinn Ewers. It is really important to have those sort of alpha dogs in your recruiting class. Normally it's a quarterback, not always, but normally, especially like triple, especially in an unprecedented time like this, where coaches can only do so much because it's a dead period. Well, if you've got a player acting as a coach, then you can imagine what that does for your overall recruiting effort. Next up is Dustin. Dave Aranda at Baylor. Good hire, great hire. Just how good of a head coach do you see him being in an offense-dominated Big 12? I think he'll do okay for himself, or if he does, I or if he doesn't, rather, I don't think it'll be because of his philosophy. Maybe he's just not a good head coach, or maybe you know he's not equipped to run a program or manage people. That we can't know. I'm not speculating. I'm just saying we can't know that. But him being a defensive coach, I couldn't care less about that. I mean, I look at the style of play, not necessarily the philosophy, but the style of play that Matt Campbell has employed at Iowa State. Iowa State, to go back to the Cyclones again, that's not a program that's playing basketball on grass. I mean, they play pretty physical up there, and they play pretty hard-nosed, smash-mouth up there, and they got a good defensive profile up there. And uh, they don't get to recruit Texas as readily as you do at Baylor. So maybe he doesn't do it in year one, but I think Dave Aranda could be okay there. If you got the right offensive system and staff in place, I think he absolutely could be okay there. All right, a reminder, uh, do a few things for me. Subscribe to the podcast. And if you're listening, you probably have. But also, get your friends to. Those five-star reviews are like gold to us. Subscribe to the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel and give me a follow on Twitter, at LateKickJosh. And if that was too fast for you, you can hit that little 10-second backwards rewind button that most of you have, and you can listen to that all again. But it really, really helps us. See, a lot of a lot of times when I find a good podcast, I want to keep it a secret so I don't tell my friends. But here's the incentive for you. The more traction we get, the more products that we get to present to you. And essentially, what a lot of our vision is for 24-7 is understanding there is, there is kind of uh, an oasis that we can build in the college football media world, because a lot of it you don't like anymore. I'm right there with you. I don't even watch a lot of TV, and I'm I'm paid to do this, but there's just not a lot out there that appeals to me. And I know I'm not alone. I know you guys. I know my audience intimately because I am, I am in you. I am of you. I am one of you. And I'm not lying about that. I don't pretend. That is exactly where I come from. That's exactly how I think. That's why I understand what you guys want, because I pretty much want the same things you do. And that is the mentality and philosophy that we have here collectively at 24-7 Sports. And what I'm saying is, the more traction, the more attention, the more love you give in the form of subscriptions and comments and reviews and listens and downloads, the more that it gets noticed by the big boys. And the more it gets noticed the more resources we are allocated, the more resources we're allocated, the more products like this we can launch and create an entire kind of ecosystem here where you can come here for whatever your college football wants and needs are. You don't have to go anywhere else. We have it all from gambling to game predictions to program whispers and intel to recruiting. Everything you need to know, none of the stuff you don't care about, this is where we want to house it. And we can do it with your help, and we will do it with your help. So, again, I appreciate you listening. Went a little over an hour. Apologize. Slap my own self on the wrist there. Soon, you will have a podcast product from us in your feed 
five days a week. And as I said, it's because of you. So again, thanks for listening wherever you have been. I'm Josh Pate. This is the Late Kick Extra podcast. Have a great rest of your week and God bless. takes two minutes of sheer horror. A new Paramount Plus original docuseries. We were dealing with a serial killer preying on elderly women. A cold-blooded killer hidden in plain sight. He's suffocating people with pillows. Leaving corpses all over Texas. How did it happen? I was responsible for her. The guilt is immeasurable. They covered it up. Pillowcase Murders, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus.